Amen. Y'all can be seated. So if you uh, follow us on Facebook at all, um, and I don't blame you if you don't because I don't have a Facebook anymore, so I can't, I can't command that of you. Uh, but if you do follow us on Facebook, um, then you know that we're starting a new series this week. Uh, and I would recommend if, if you want to stay up to date on all the hip, cool things that we do, um, follow us on Facebook. Uh, so we're starting a new series. Um, I am not a creative person. And so if we are talking about the Gospel of John, the series will be called John. If we are talking about relationships, the series will be called Relate. Uh, because I don't have the mental capacity to do anything super cool or <laughs> and I'm, I'm taking Greek, but I don't really, I can't even tell you how to write relate in Greek, and I can't do any of this cool stuff. So um, we're spending the next three weeks before we jump into Advent examining our relationships, and we are tackling it from a specifically romantic angle. I know last year we talked about how we relate to kind of all of the different webs of relationships, how we relate to the church, to our friends, to our family. Uh, we are specifically addressing a romantic relationships, be they dating or engagement or marriage for the next three weeks. And I recognize that there are a great number of people in this room who have the same background as I do, which is that you grew up relatively in the church, and if you ever strayed, you didn't run particularly far before the Lord dragged you back, maybe kicking and screaming, but he dragged you back. And I realized that many of those people also grew up in youth groups. And so uh, growing up an evangelical in a youth group in the early 2000s, uh, you've gotten your purity ring, you've kissed dating goodbye, you've done all of the, all of the different kind of rites of passage. And fun fact, um, I did the purity ring ceremony when I was in middle school, and my finger was too fat for the ring. <laughs> And so I never actually got to wear mine. I, I put it in like a drawer and I can't find it now. And it's not because I did anything to revoke my right to the purity ring. I just, my fingers are a little overweight. So, um, so all of us, uh, for those of us who've grown up with that background, when we hear, oh, we are talking about dating, there is an internal groan and our eyes, our spiritual eyes roll and we go, oh gosh, this is going to be miserable. And, and I have that reaction to a great number of things, uh, and, and it's not just that, because I have a similar reaction sometimes uh, to the topic of sitting under a series on dating and relationships. Uh, there's just certain things that I've heard so many times that I assume that we're killing a dead horse by still talking about it. So the thing that up until very recently I felt like we were killing a dead horse with is you don't, you don't get into heaven because you're a good person. And I would hear that in sermon after sermon after podcast after podcast. And I just finally was like, people know this. I've heard it 6,000 times. Nobody thinks you get into heaven for being a good person. Uh, but then my mom counseled a couple a few months back. And the husband said, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I, I should be going to heaven. And I went, maybe people don't actually know this like I thought they did. And so for those of you who are like me, who go, oh, relationships, people know this, let me tell you that they don't know it as well as you think that they do. Um, but let me go a step further. Um, many of us who think we know it still don't actually do it. We, we don't function in accordance with the things that we know. Uh, there's an old preaching illustration that 
may or may not be based in fact, but the illustration goes that there's this backcountry preacher and he kind of ascends the pulpit uh, first of the year and he preaches out of a specific text on a specific topic and uses all these wonderful illustrations. Uh, service ends, people leave, they come back the next week and he climbs the pulpit and he goes to the same text with the same illustrations on the same topic and people go, that's a little strange. And then he comes back the third week and does the exact same thing and somebody says, why do you keep preaching the same sermon? And he says, because none of you have done anything with it yet. I don't plan on doing that for the next three weeks. (laughs) But the reality is that sometimes just because we know things to be true doesn't mean we actually do them. And we have to be reminded again and again and again until we live in accordance with what we know to be true. Uh, The other reason that I feel compelled to have this conversation for the next few weeks is, is that I've really been thinking about uh, something that a guy named James, named James K.A. Smith says. Uh, he's a philosopher at Calvin College, and he basically argues that all of our life is liturgical. Now, that's a big church word, so let me bring it down to uh, everyday conversation. Uh, the order of a service within a church is called a liturgy. So the liturgy for impact would be that we come together and Marcus leads us in prayer normally and then Jordan or Beth or somebody reads from scripture and then we sing two or three songs and then I preach and then we do communion and then we close. That's our liturgy. But within a church, the order of what happens when we come together should not simply meet you where you're at and how you feel currently. Because the reality is that many of us probably came in here and said, I don't really feel like praying. And so if the liturgy were based on how you feel at any given moment, we probably wouldn't do much of anything. Uh, but when we gather, our, our liturgy is not meant to meet you where you at, but to tell you where you should be. You don't feel like praying today. Tough luck. We're praying today. You don't feel like worshiping today. Too bad. We're worshiping today. It's not about where you are. It's about where God should be drawing you to. And it's not just church services that are meant to shape people like that. You'll notice that if you hang out with the same group of friends for long enough, you begin to adopt the sense of humor. You begin to adopt some of the, even the sayings of those friends. Uh, I've got a friend right now who's a missionary in Scotland. He's been there for about two or three years. And he, as a good old boy from Tennessee, now has a Scottish accent. Uh, because, uh, and it blew my mind, and it, wanted, it made me want to just sit in Scotland for a year and not do anything other than develop an accent. Um, But the culture that he finds himself in has formed and shaped him unconsciously. He's not practicing a Scottish accent. He's just been formed by being surrounded by it. And here is my fear, is that in the church, our perception of romance and love and dating and courtship and marriage is not being formed by scripture, but it's being formed by culture because all of these things are formational. The question is what's doing the forming. And the more that you examine the, the mold that scripture is, or not scripture, but the mold that culture is pushing us into, the more concerning it becomes. In 2013, there was an essay published in the New York Times called The End of Courtship. It was published by Alex Williams in January. And it begins by recounting the story of a 30-year-old woman named Shani Silver. And she's telling the author about this time that she was invited on a date to a pub in and somewhere in New York, and she said, or the, the guy said, hey, do you want to go grab some drinks, go on a date sometime? And so she showed up to the pub, and the guy wasn't there for about an hour, and so she finally texted him and goes, hey, <laughs> about that date thing. And he goes, yeah, I'm here with all my friends from college. Come hang out. 
And that was, that was his idea of a date. And so uh, Silver goes on to say this, dating culture has evolved to a cycle of text messages, each one requiring the code-breaking skills of a Cold War spy to interpret. <laughs> she goes on and says, most relationships hover one step below a date and one step above a high five. And that dinner at a romantic new bistro uh, should just be discarded. Women in their 20s these days are lucky to get a last-minute text to tag along. Uh, the article goes on. It cites a woman named Donna Freitas, who is a professor of gender and religion at Boston University, who wrote a book on this topic. And she did exit interviews with the college students graduating from Boston. And she says this, uh, in interviews with students, many graduating seniors did not know the first thing about the basic mechanics of a traditional date. She goes on to say that dates among 20-somethings resemble college hookups only without dorm rooms. The article goes a step further, and it cites a woman named Andrea Liventhal. And she says, we are all PhDs in internet stalking these days. Online research makes the first date feel unnecessary because it creates a false sense of intimacy. You think that you know the important things about a person, when in reality, all you know is that they watch Homeland just like you. So here is my point. If culture is forming us, it is forming us in this image, and that image is unacceptable. The people of God have to look different than this. Our relationships have to be governed differently than this. And so my hope is that we can come to Scripture and be formed by that rather than the cultural mold. Now, there's at least one thing that stands in the way of this going particularly well for us if we don't tackle it right off the bat. And it's this reality. That what you understand to be dating in the Western cultural sense of the word is altogether foreign from every person the Holy Spirit inspired to write the Bible. So, you can go to Song of Songs, which is a profound book about love, but it will not tell you if dinner should come first or the movie. In the same way, you can go to the Gospels and see Christ's statements on love and, and what it looks like to love and honor and cherish people. They, he's not going to tell you how many days you should wait to call back after the first date. Nor are you going to find in Scripture the principles for letting somebody down easy and having the it not, it's not you, it's me conversation. That's just not going to be in there. That is not to say by any means that love and endearment and marriages that were flourishing and beautiful and, and that both partners were fulfilled. And that's not to say that that wasn't present. But if you come to scripture and expect a blow-by-blow, blow, here's how to, how to have a great first date. And the guys should always pay for the girls on the first date. And Dutch dating is, you, you, it's not in there. But you shouldn't be distressed by that. Because there's a lot of things that you encounter in the modern Western world that you will not find explicit statements on in scripture. But God in his wisdom has seen fit to breathe out principles that will give you a lens through which to discern the rightness and the wrongness of how to act. So, example. Internet pornography, not a thing 2,000 years ago, not a thing 3,500 years ago, not a thing ever other than about 50 to 60 years ago. A couple things working against that. There are no computers. There are no internets. Uh, there is no internets. Um, you can't really take pictures or videos other than what you chisel into a rock or paint on a vase or make out of mud. But nobody is going to say that scripture doesn't speak to these things. It's the foolish person who says, well, it doesn't say don't pull up X, Y, and Z sites, and therefore, 
It's not in there. Uh, So the reality is that while Scripture is not going to tell you how to have a great first date, uh, it's not going to tell you how long you have to date before you know that he or she is the one. That's not in there. There are principles, profound principles, that should shape you in a way that determines how you relate to the people that you find yourself romantically attracted to. So there's three of them. They'll be on the screen. We'll examine each of these, one of each of these each week. Uh, The first principle is this, that Scripture tells us who we are, and this should shape how we relate to people. The next is this, that Scripture tells us who we ought to be, and that will be formative. The last is this, that Scripture teaches us the conditions for human flourishing. And so we'll examine that. Uh, But tonight, we look at who we are. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. I'm going to confess to you I've been preaching out of Matthew for so long that I almost just said the gospel of Genesis, Um, which I guess you could argue theologically is the case, but uh, yeah, I'm going to probably call a lot of books the gospel on accident as I'm getting used to not Sermon on the Mount. So we're in Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Let me read it so that we have a, a direction that we're going this evening. Scripture says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What we find in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is this theological concept. It'll be on the screen if you want to write it down and you want a definition. It's called the Imago Dei. And what it means is the image of God. Uh, it's pretty explicit in the text that we are made in the image of God. But that's more than just a casual throwaway throw statement. That's a statement about who we are. One of the first rules of philosophy, know thyself. And I would venture to say the first rule of any kind of relationship, whether it's platonic or romantic, is that you have to know who you are and who it is that you're relating to. So, point in case, if I were to kick down the door of the Oval Office and say, what's up, Obama? It's Travi Mac. How's it going? <laughs> One, I probably wouldn't even live to say that. I'd get shot by the CIA. Um, two, I would expect Obama to respond in one of two ways. Who are you? <laughs> or... Who do you think you are? I guess it would be three ways. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? I'm the president. I don't know what you are. Right? Because at the core of how I relate to Obama is who he is in relation to who I am. In the same way, at the core of the way that we relate to the people around us, especially romantically, we have to have a foundational understanding of who it is that we are and who it is that they are. The foundation that scripture lays is that both two parties in any romantic or platonic relationship are image bearers. They are made in the image of God, in the imago Dei. And notice, it doesn't simply say the men are in the image of God. He created them male and female. In God's image, they were made. All men and all women, from the minute that they are born to the minute that they die, bear the image of the Almighty, no matter how marred it becomes by sin. So, what does that say about who we are? What does it mean to be in the image of God, and how does that affect how we relate to one another? Well, there's a couple things you can probably rule out right away. Um, 
We're told that God is spirit. Uh, The only time that God actually has a body is in the incarnation when the son puts on flesh. Uh, So at this point, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, So when we talk about being in the image of God, we don't mean that God has fingernails, and so do we. Isn't that cool? And God paints his nails sometimes just like we do. Or uh, We don't mean that we have eyelashes, and so does God. We don't mean that God has hair and so do we. We're not talking about the physicality of our being. We're not talking about the biology of personhood. We're talking about the spiritual makeup of people. So we can rule out first and foremost that we look like God physically. We only look like God in as much as we bear the same form as Christ. So the next thing that we can go to is there's a couple things about the image of God that are just kind of patently false that you don't have. You're not omnipotent. I don't think that's a hard thing to rule out because I promise I can ask you just some random question you won't know the answer to. Uh, And you can ask me plenty that I won't know the answer to. Uh, So we can rule out omnipotence as being what it means to be in God's image. Um, I would say being all-powerful, probably not a thing. If that is the case with you, can you please manifest for me a new car? Because I need one badly. Um, So so image-bearing precludes some things, right? We are not gods, in any sense of the word, but we bear his image, uh, much in the same way that a painting can be made of somebody and it will carry aspects of that person's likeness, but it's not the person in all of its fullness. It could, it could never fully be the person. The person is the only person like the person. So, with that being said, theologians have written tens of thousands of millions of billions of pages on this topic, and I want to talk about two aspects of being made in the image of God and how it has bearing on our relationships. Uh, So in the text, we notice this really interesting aside. Verse 26, God says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, from a very early point in Christian history, Christians and theologians have looked at that and said that is a peel back into the life of the Trinity. That is the curtain being pulled back. This is a conversation within the triune God, which leads to maybe the most important thing we can say about who God is, which will affect how we recognize ourselves as image bearers. When we talk about God as Christians, we believe that he is triune. I'm going to make a harsh statement, so I'm sorry, but if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. The Trinity is who God is. Now, I don't think you have to understand fully the Trinity because there's nobody here that does, and that would make none of us Christians. But to outright reject it is to reject clearly who God teaches himself to be. So there's two things in the Trinity, and I realize we're up here in kind of heady theology. It comes down in a moment to boots on the ground. But uh, we recognize this. There is one God. It's in the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. But God exists in three persons. So within God, as we speak of him, there is God the Father, and he is fully God. He's not like a third God. He's fully God. There's God the Son, who is fully God. And there's God the Spirit, who is fully God, despite the fact that we kind of get awkward talking about him sometimes. So so there are three persons within God. What we see here is a conversation within God the Godhead. So what this means at its heart, at its core, is that God exists in community. That means something for creation first and foremost. Here's one thing it means. Uh, The cosmos are not some sort of a lonely accident that God performs. 
I'm really bummed being the only thing in existence. Let me zap something else out. Uh, Because there was never a time where God didn't exist in communion, in community. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're all present for all eternity. They love one another. They delight in one another. There's fullness of joy in them. God did not create the universe because he was lonely. There is no loneliness in the Godhead because God is at his core communal. The second thing that this means is that love precedes the universe itself. God did not create the universe to have something to love. He doesn't go, I have this unexpressed thing in my heart. Let me zap something to express it towards. That's not what happens. Because you you can see it in Jesus' life and ministry that there is love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. There is delight. So when we read in Scripture, God is love, God has always been love. That is who God is. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father, the Son. They commune with one another. They delight in one another. They glorify one another. C.S. Lewis calls it this beautiful dance. So, what does this mean for us? So being in the image of God, I think first and foremost, means that we are built for community. And the second thing I think it means is that we are built not just for community, but to give and receive love and to have it expressed. You see this communal aspect to us in the next chapter when uh, God creates Adam and he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. Why? Because God himself is not alone and God exists in community and man is in his image. So we have this innate need to be in relation with other people. And we have this innate need to give and receive love. There's this really interesting and tragic phenomena happening in Russia right now where there's more orphans than there are orphanages and hands and nurses who can help out at the orphanage. And so what's happening is that there are kids who, and children primarily experience love through closeness and through people holding them and affirming them and things like that. There's kids who will only be picked up once a day for maybe five to ten minutes while they are fed because there are so many babies in so many cribs that the nurses can't feed all of them and hold them for any more than a couple minutes at a time. And here's what you see coming out of Russia. Profoundly, emotionally crippled children because they are made in God's image and the core of God's being is love. And to cut somebody off from that desecrates the image of God in them. Now, culture would look at this and go, of course, that's, that's why we have so many dating apps. That's why you've got all these things, and that's why, that's why you should really be looking for a significant other, and you should be dating, or you're 25, 27. You should be married right now. Aren't you lonely? Uh, and, and then at that point, culture kind of steps in now and goes, well, you're in a dry spell, so you You've got Tinder, right? And in the meantime, you can satisfy your lack of uh, communion and and loneliness and the lack of love in your life with some casual hookups that don't actually cost you anything in the meantime. And so culture looks at that and, and thinks that it has found the solution to these needs. But I want you to recognize that communion and community and love are not only found in romantic relationships, there can be community without having a make-out partner, and sex does not equal love. God's answer for this need in the human spirit is not exclusively marriage. God's answer for this is the church. The church is the answer foundationally to those needs. 
that you would step into a community of people who share the most important thing about ourselves with each other, that we're redeemed under the blood of Christ. That you would be able to love God and your neighbor in communion with other people who recognize that the greatest commandment is that there would be love for God and neighbor. The reason I say all this is not because dating is bad, but because dating is not the primary means to fulfill those needs. And when it becomes that, we've got a foundational and fundamental problem because you'll say whenever I'm not dating somebody I'm not getting the community I need and whenever I'm not dating somebody I'm not getting the love I need God has not ordained that your dating or marriage be the primary and exclusive way that you experience that and here's the other thing this doesn't get talked about a lot post-reformation because when Luther reformed the church he kind of threw off the whole monkhood thing and said this isn't a commandment that that priests be monks and be celibate Um, God still calls people to celibacy 100%, God still calls people to celibacy, and he may well call somebody in this room to celibacy. And the great danger is that if we affirm marriage and dating as the pinnacle of human existence and experience, we marginalize something that God has deemed good, which is that he might call people to experience the community and the love that he has designed them to experience within the confines of the church. So, if you're single, and I'm not saying this as some youth pastor who talks about his smoking hot wife every five minutes. I'm single. I've been single. And I don't think that the way that we find community and the way that we find love is primarily through our dating. I think it's through the church. I think it's through fellowship with the Almighty. And I think that dating and marriage are good and perfect gifts from God but you're not starving to death just because you don't have someone to have sex with. And your life is not miserable and awful just because you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend despite the jokes that I may make on Instagram. (laughs) So, first thing, that we are communal and that we need love to give and receive love. The second point is this. You read on in 26. After man is made in God's image... He gives what is called the cultural mandate. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In 28, it goes on and says, God bless them. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Beth read for us from Psalms 8, where David reflects on this passage of Scripture, and he composes a song out of it. Because the reality is that we're not just communal and we're not just loving beings, but God has created man and given him a purpose, an occupation, a role in which they are meant to function. Mankind is meant to function. Uh, God doesn't just say, here you are, have fun. Uh, but there is, there is this occupational uh, giving that God says I desire that things would be good. I desire that we would see flourishing. I desire that there would be life and there would be joy and there would be shalom and peace and abundance. Here's the role you play in that. Here's the things that I expect you to do to fulfill this commandment. So being in the image of God, uh, we're not just communal and we're not just uh, loving beings, but we have roles that God has ordained that we ought to function within. And this is not a foreign thing to God, 
either. Because when we look at the Trinity, even in creation, you see the different persons of the Trinity living out different roles. The Father speaks. The Spirit hovers over the waters. All of this is accomplished through Jesus when you read the New Testament. You can pull it over to salvation. The Father sends the Son. The Son dies on the cross. The Spirit applies the work of redemption to his people. Each of them is doing something different. They are fulfilling different roles while equally God, equally to be worshipped, equally omnipotent, equally powerful. They function in different capacities. So too, I think it is that God has ordained that there are things that God has given to women and things that God has given to men that don't overlap. There are many things that do. There's a lot of things that overlap. And then there are certain things that God says, This is the role that I have given to you, and this is the role that I have given to you. And that's not a distinction of value any more than saying that Jesus is less of God than the Father. It's a distinction of role. So, God gives man this ordinance. Here's the role that you should fulfill. And When we fail to function within some of these roles that God has established and ordained, what we find is disunity. I, for one, could never really build anything more than like some Legos, right? Because I can't build a car because I know that each part of the car has a role and each role is important, but I don't know what they do. And if I put them in wrong, the car blows up and and crazy things happen. Or maybe the car becomes a supercar and I stumble upon like an anti-gravity engine or something. Uh, but, but the reality is that, that without putting things in their proper place, as they have been ordained to function, what we have is not shalom, what we have is not peace, what we have is not flourishing, what we have is disharmony. But the last thing, and I think the most important thing, is this. And next week we'll talk about um, the roles that God has for us and, and how we're to operate within those, but... But I want you to know that the image of God, the Imago Dei, is not something that only gets mentioned once in Genesis and then never again for the rest of all of Scripture. After the flood, God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of a man or a woman deserves death because man alone is made in God's image and there will be judgment for desecrating God's image. James, Jesus' brother, goes on later and he says, with our lips we praise God and then we curse men who are made in God's image. This should not be. Be. And you can go on and on and on throughout the whole sweep of Scripture that uniquely people bear the image of God. And on that principle alone are worthy of dignity and esteem and respect. So, practically, this works itself out in a lot of ways. Christians should never delight in death, ever. No matter how wicked the person is and no matter how righteous the judgment, we should mourn that an image bearer has died. But in relationships, here's the crazy thing. Is, is we, it seems to me, at least, and in my own experience of trying to make this work in my life, um, it's easy for us to call somebody an image bearer when they're sweet and they're lovely and they're wonderful and the relationship is going great. Of course she bears the image of God. She's heavenly. Whatever. Something stupid like that. But when the person wrongs you, when the relationship fails, oh, the image disappears. And we adopt a scorched earth policy 
of saying as many painful things as we can to the person and as many painful things as we can say about the person. And we no longer respect them as image bearers. Uh, to, To paraphrase the New Testament, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. I'm not saying that every person that you date is gonna be your best friend afterwards. I'm not saying that breakups aren't painful, but I am saying that the image of God doesn't leave a person just because your relationship didn't work out. And if you start treating them and speaking about them as though they're no longer image bearers, you're in sin. The foundation of Christian relationships with everybody, not just romantic relationships, friendships, Relationships with non-believers is that I esteem you and I value you. And, I, and I, I recognize your inherent dignity because you bear the image of the Almighty. No matter how much sin distorts that, no matter how much you wrong me, I do not have justification to sow salt in the field. I don't have justification to practice this scorched earth policy about your reputation or to exit the relationship saying all these terrible things about you and to you because you fundamentally still bear the image of God even if I don't like you a whole lot right now. So this is the ground on which we build everything. Who am I? Who are they? The easy thing is that the answer is the same for both. I bear the image of God. I'm a mago day. They bear the image of God. Imago day. And from that point, we build up. Let's pray. Father, God, it's so easy to say these things, it's so hard to do these things. Uh, Lord, it's easy to uh, affirm these things as being true, uh, but God, it's so often that we don't even act in accordance with what we know is true. God, I pray that you give us the courage and the conviction to do that. Father, I pray that that despite how we may feel, despite our changing circumstances, that we recognize that people are to be valued. No matter how much sin distorts the image, they still bear your image. You can throw a lot of crap on a painting and it's still a painting. So God, we just pray that you teach us to recognize that. God, I pray that you... uh, Teach us to live in light of that. I gotta pray that you shape our relationships moving forward. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.